All right. Welcome back to the Bread and Butter Podcast. I'm your host, Brecklin, and today we have a very special guest, Trevor Peterson. Welcome to the podcast, Trevor. Great to be here. Thank you, Brecklin. <laughs> it's funny to kind of do the formal back and forth because most of the people that I interview, I genuinely don't know or I've talked to very little. And I know Trevor very well. He's my uncle. So super excited to have him on. When I actually first started the podcast, he was on the list. He was on the list as one of the guests I wanted to have on. So we finally have him on, but for people who don't know you as well as I do, kind of give us a brief overview of of where you're at in life right now, kind of who you are. Okay, I will try. So I'm Trevor Peterson, as you said. Um, I'm kind of in the, the middle part of my life, which is interesting to think about. And I'm at that point where I've, uh, I think I've accomplished some of the goals I said and um, tried to learn some things. And so now I'm trying to find ways to find meaning, devoting maybe my attention and um, skills elsewhere. So that's kind of where I'm at as far as the phase of life I'm in, but I'm a dad of five kids. So in the middle of all that busyness, they're all very active and involved with sports and music and school. So I'm doing that, running around, trying to be as, as many of their events as possible. I'm a professor of psychology and a clinical psychologist. So I do some teaching and some counseling and that's, that's the gist of it. No, thank you. Um, I just, I feel like I don't know. I feel like I just wanted to give my own background of how obviously I've interacted with you my whole life just at family functions and just um, in our relationship as uncle niece. Um, But also one of my favorite memories of you, I don't think I actually interacted with you directly, but my senior year of high school, um, you genuinely had the biggest impact on me. It was kind of the first time in my life like a lot of young adults, they start realizing that they're like, oh, I'm dealing with some significant health, some mental health challenges. Um, I had severe anxiety for the first time. Just kind of, I was sifting through what it was like to experience severe anxiety. And my mom reached out to you. She's like, what do I do? You know, Brecklin's struggling. What does she need? Sent her resources. You sent her a book that I still have. It's still on my shelf. And it just kind of explained... Tell me if I'm saying this wrong, but this kind of method that just really, really has blessed my life for years to come. And I always will just kind of have kind of like this soft spot for, I don't know, this this kind of method of self-talk and self-love and just kind of what it did for me. Obviously, I've struggled with mental health challenges since. It's it's an ongoing thing like it is for a lot of people, um, but I do think it, it's kind of groundbreaking. And so I wanted to have you on to kind of talk about it in your own words, because I don't know that we've actually ever had a conversation about, about it specifically. So that's why, that's why I brought you on. Yeah, no, it's, it's something that I, that I feel like you can speak to very well and something that I don't completely understand totally. So I'll probably be asking lots of questions as we kind of go along, but before we kind of jump into things, tell me just a little bit about what what role like mental health has played in your life? What has it looked like in your life? Um, What experiences have you had with it so far? Yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, I think I grew up in a home and in an environment where I didn't know a lot about mental health. It wasn't really talked about. I think it was just maybe just the time period and the location I lived in, you know, psychologists. I don't know if I ever even 
heard of that term used. Even the even psychology itself, we I don't think we had a psychology course in my high school, so I was pretty clueless as far as there being some sort of science behind you know helping people who struggle. And so in my life, you know, I I guess I didn't always realize what I was going through, but I in hindsight realized I had pretty serious social anxiety. Um, led to a lot of angst and a lot of avoidance um, where possible. Um, I remember a teacher in high school saying. And like, hey, Trevor, you need to just relax because if you don't, you're going to get an ulcer. You know, I'm like if I only knew how to relax, like what does that look like? You know, like how do you actually do that? You know, I just I had a high expectations for myself, was kind of a perfectionist, and just constantly felt angst. You know, was very mindful and conscientious about like when I was being observed or possibly judged or evaluated, and so those situations were, I mean, giving a presentation in front of class, I would just melt and shake, and um, so so difficult for me um and again i didn't quite know that was like maybe a disorder that could be diagnosed or treated i just thought it was just some unique personality traits so i just kind of dealt with it um and i i probably had bouts of subclinical depression where i you know had a didn't achieve something i wanted to or felt a sense of rejection and you know i think there was times where i probably dropped into a, a low mood for for some time and took me a minute to get out of it so so that was, yeah, kind of early in life, I had my struggles and, you know, that kind of social anxiety and sometimes the avoidance with that got in the way of, you know, building deeper friendships at times, even feeling comfortable around people I, you know, interacted with pretty regularly. So it was, it was a barrier. It was a battle. Yeah. No, and thanks for sharing that because I think, like I said, I think it's a very, like, globally shared experience to I mean obviously to feel mental discomfort to but to feel also in a clinical way where you're like this cannot just be the cards I was dealt like this is excessive right like this is uncomfortable Mm -hmm. um at what point did you kind of shift over and maybe discover oh this maybe this isn't it for me maybe there's a new way to live maybe like what what was next for you because I have a lot of memories of probably just my mom telling me this kind of transformation that she's seen you go through from kind of a shy reserved kid who was shy obviously she was your older sister so she was probably just always kind of observing Um, but I've never known you to be that way Um, and I've known you you know years and you've always been friendly and outgoing and kind and great at connecting so what kind of changed for you yeah absolutely so I mean it probably started at at a young age, um, you know, I, I have a mom who you know well, Franklin, who didn't really tolerate avoidance. And so even though I would try, like she would put me in uncomfortable situation after uncomfortable situation. So, you know, I'm a seven-year-old kid. We go to McDonald's and she's like, Trevor, if you want food, you better order your meal. <laughs> right? So the last thing I'd ever want to do when I'm trying to stand there, you know, at the counter and look this, you know person in the eye and, and come up with what I want to, you know, yeah, what I want to order and just, you know, so much anxiety and shaky. And, um, so there's that. I mean, I remember a time in junior high where, you know, it was, uh, first year in junior high and everyone would, you know, actually most of it was just parents who would go and meet the teachers and sign up for classes. My mom's like, I'm busy. Go sign up for your classes. Go meet your teacher. And I get there and I'm like one of the only kids there. It's almost all adults. And I'm so socially anxious. And I'm like, ah, you know, but I was there. I had to do it. And so I just dealt with it and experienced the anxiety of it. And, you know, and and over and over again, I realized, you know what? It wasn't as bad as I thought. 
I was able to manage it better than I thought. Um, I think there was a time even when I was an eighth grader, I was, you know, I was okay at soccer. My mom was like, you know, just go try out for the high school soccer team. You know, maybe you'll get you. Maybe they'll take you, even though you're not a high school student. And I go there and they're like, what are you doing here? <laughs> you're an eighth grader. Like, when they figure out how old I am, like, you can't be, you know, just super awkward. But, you know, those were situations that helped me realize, you know, I can be in really awkward situations and they're really not as bad as I had imagined in my mind. And I, I survived them. I got through them. So I think that was very helpful. Leaving home, I remember my brother saying something like, you know, hey, Trevor, my advice for you is every day do at least one thing to step outside your comfort zone and it'll change your life. And that was really transformative to like be intentional about stepping into the discomfort and finding kind of the beauty that was out there and the relationships and the opportunities. So that was big. Um, I spent a couple of years, um, you know, before even going to college on a service mission. And that was, that was, yeah. I mean, I just realized if I'm going to be out here and be helping people, I got to be able to like talk to people, you know, <laughs> have to be able to interact and get to know them. And um, if I'm going to, you know, create relationships and be able to serve. And so that was, that was extremely transformative, just constant daily, you know, serving new people I'd never met before. And, um, yeah, really helped me get outside my comfort zone in ways that I, I never would have done, you know, without kind of that constant, um, opportunity and need to do so. So I think a, a pivotal moment was when I realized, like, I care enough about people to want to help them. And the only way to help them is if I stop fearing them. And so kind of that compassion helped me override my fear. That was that was a pivotal moment when I kind of had that breakthrough in my mind. Like the only way to serve and help and make a difference in people's lives is if you stop fearing them. So. Yeah, that's an interesting concept. I think one thing that I'm super fascinated with is, um, I mean, I'll speak for myself, but I think it's also a very human, a human kind of need to avoid discomfort. Obviously, there's we have like this innate drive to kind of avoid danger and to keep ourselves alive. But beyond that, I feel like there's such a drive to avoid discomfort, like you say. And but then, you know, they say it's it's so cheesy. They're like, oh, yeah, all of your your growth happens in your what is it? Growth best happens outside of your comfort zone. And I do think that having like a specific why is so crucial to that. So if you were to mm-hmm. kind of coach someone who's like, you know what, like, I know I need to get myself in uncomfortable situations, but what, how does, how is someone going to identify situations in which they need to make, they either need to make available to themselves or put themselves in those situations so that they can experience discomfort without just randomly being like, let's, let's experience discomfort, right? Like how, what's the best way to go about that? Like intentionally to kind of align with your values. Yeah, absolutely. I remember seeing something, I think it was on social media with a little circle that said comfort zone. And then far away from that circle was a big circle that said where the magic happens. And it was far outside the comfort zone. And so I think that kind of visual sometimes is helpful. But I think you already, in some ways, answered the question. Um, You know, if you think of yourself standing at the edge of a stream and it's cold water, and if we think, okay, I'm going to, there's something over on the other side that that I'm really interested in, that I value, that I want to do or achieve over there. But I can't get over there because the stream is cold. So I'm going to wait at the edge of the stream until either it stops flowing or it starts to get warm, right? And if this is a mountain stream, it's, you know, and there's there's a decent amount of snow on the top of the mountains, like it's probably not going to stop flowing anytime soon and it, and it may never warm up, right? So there is that, that realization of 
If I value something enough, I have to just commit and go for it. And that means I have to walk through the stream maybe every day of my life. It's a little bit uncomfortable, um, but it's but it's possible. And it's what I value over there that that drives me to do it. And so, yeah, usually in conversations with clients or college students, that's the question is, what do you value enough to justify the struggle, the discomfort to achieve it or to connect with it? Um, we have to kind of justify our discomfort, justify our suffering. And once we can assign meaning to suffering, it, it kind of ceases to be the same thing. It's something that we may even cherish and value and maybe an indicator of growth and connection. Um, the very thing that before was an alarm to, to pull back and avoid now is an uh, indicator that we're making progress. We're, we're doing something of substance and meaningful. It's almost like a invisible fence, you know, and a dog with a collar. And the moment they leave that invisible fence, they get the shock and that tells them to retreat. We all kind of, I think, have that. Our brains and bodies are set up for homeostasis and equilibrium. And so we often get this little signal when we're adding stress to our life to pull back, you know, get back to your comfort zone, get back to equilibrium. And so we have to push past that. We have to recognize that that's, that's probably just going to happen. And that doesn't mean anything wrong is occurring. It means actually that we're, we're leaving the comfort zone and we're entering into that place where, you know, newness and growth and connections can happen. I love that. Thinking of just kind of the water example itself, I recently started swimming again, which is something I did all through high school. Loved it. It was so good for me. It was just, it was a happy place for me. And I was at this point in my life where I was like, you know what? It's time to get back in the water. I, I want to swim again. I want to like reuse those muscles. I want to increase my physical health, all of these things. So I started going to the pool the water's really cold. So like literally extremely cold. And I really, really had to like think through how am I going to get myself to jump in this water three days a week? Because, you know, for some people, maybe it's easier for me. It is a battle. I already struggle with transitions. Even the thought of like getting up and putting a suit on was just beyond because you have to get up early. And it's so interesting to me how I literally had to practice being discomfort, like being uncomfortable over and over and over. And so my method was honestly a little bit wild. I would roll down my windows as I drove to the pool to get as cold as possible because I knew that the pool is going to be cold. And then I knew that I had to make the transition from my car to the pool as quickly as possible. I knew that if I took a long time to look around the pool, put on my cap, adjust my goggles, you know, like mess with my watch. It was going to be so hard. I also knew that if I dipped my toe in before I jumped, it would never happen. And so I would sprint walk from the car to the pool like my life depended on it. And I'm sure people around me were like, what in the world? But I genuinely can say after like a month of doing it, I know every time I get in my car and drive to the pool, I know I'm going to jump in and do the workout. Like, I just know it. And I think, you know, kind of pivoting off of my like very literal example, what are any tips you have for like practicing discomfort? Because I think sometimes it can be really easy to be like, you know, you just got to do it. Like, yeah, just do it. But I'm like, sometimes you have to like have an actual technique to be like, I, I'm going to do this. Like, how am I going to practice doing this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, and I like, you know, what you mentioned of doing intentional things to reduce the friction of doing something hard, you know, doing it more rapidly, um, re removing barriers, because that can go a long way. I think reviewing in your mind the reasons, right, the rationale for why you can justify the suffering, the good it's going to do for you now and in the, in the future are helpful. 
other tips people use is having a companion, <laughs> accountability person that literally drags you places and yeah. knocks on your door at six in the morning and says, hey, I'm ready for the run, you know, yeah. and, and then you feel obligated and then it helps you overcome that, you know, initial resistance to step outside your comfort zone. So a support person can go a really long way. Having extrinsic rewards initially, it's another helpful approach, something to just kind of build momentum by rewarding yourself with something you really value that you wouldn't otherwise give yourself, like earning some clothing you wanted or to go to the movies or, you know, where you could, you get a certain amount of days in of doing this new behavior that's uncomfortable and you can earn this thing that's kind of wanted and been looking forward to. Um, or having someone else be that person who grants you that reward if you, if you achieve your goal for the, for the week. So those are some strategies, you know, some people have mantras or sayings that they, that they like, um, you know, for me, if my goal, you know, at least back in the day was to connect to more people socially to overcome my hesitation, you know, a mantra like connection um, over comfort was helpful that I, mm -hmm. I realized in my priorities, I valued connecting to people socially more than I did my own comfort. And I was willing to sacrifice my comfort for that social connection, for that bond. And that, for whatever reason, just something I could repeat and something that can help push me, push me beyond my own discomfort. Um, so I think those are a few approaches that I've heard people find fairly effective. Another, another one is just some education about how anxiety works. Mm -hmm. There's this, you know, anxiety curve that's helpful to think about where um, you think of, of kind of on the x-axis, you have your exposure to the thing that's scary or uncomfortable. And then on the y-axis, you have your level of anxiety or actual discomfort. You know, what happens at very low levels of stress or challenge, um, you know, there's low anxiety or low, low stress. But as that challenge or distress, I should say, as that challenge goes up or as that stress goes up or as you're exposed to that thing that is uncomfortable for longer and longer, your anxiety goes up, 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 up. But then eventually it will peak, right? You can only get so anxious or even panic so much before it can't go any higher. And then if you stick with it, if you just keep doing that activity or continuing that conversation, whatever it is, eventually your body will just naturally habituate. It'll get more comfortable. It'll, it'll deescalate. It'll start to calm down. Mm -hmm. And then there's that relief that comes with prolonged exposure to something that's uncomfortable or anxiety provoking. And when your body starts to relax, you know, after continuing to give that speech for long enough or talking to that person for long enough or swimming for long enough um, in that cold water, then two really powerful things can happen in your mind. You realize, one, it wasn't as bad as I thought, and two, I was more able to manage it than I thought. Yeah. And that's really powerful because then the next time when you're facing something similar that's fearful or scary or uncomfortable, you, you know that now. You're like, you know, these types of situations rarely are as bad as I think, and I'm better able to manage them than I initially, you know, give myself credit for. And I know if I just stick with it, I'll calm down and relax eventually. And so I just need to push through and get to the other side. And if I don't though, if I avoid, if I pull back before I get to that peak, then that relief I get is actually causing what we call negative reinforcement, where the, the negative part is the removal of the discomfort with relief now reinforces or encourages me to keep avoiding and keep avoiding and keep avoiding. If I just, and then if I keep avoiding, then I'm pretty soon being less and less likely to engage with life and my life becomes more inactive and I have less you know, enjoyable experiences. And so at all costs, I got to not avoid, I got to push myself to face this fear, experience that habituation, that de-escalation, and then get the feedback that it's not that bad and I can deal with it. And then yeah. the next time you do a similar thing, probably the peak isn't as high, it's a little less, the next time it's a little less, till eventually there's almost no peak, you almost flatline, it's almost 
very little arousal at all when you face that thing that's uncomfortable or anxiety provoking. So mm-hmm. that sometimes that can be helpful to keep that in mind that if I follow out the process, things will get better with time. Yeah. yeah. I think that's really profound. Um, I'd like to dive in just a little bit further into, and tell me if I'm saying this wrong, is it the ACT method? Uh, yeah, they say ACT typically. But, ACT, the mm-hmm. ACT method. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is that the proper, yeah. the proper term yeah. then? Okay. Yeah. So there's this method, the ACT method. I was introduced to it, like I said, when I was probably like 17 or 18. And I've come back to it periodically throughout my adult life. Um, And I think it relates. So I'd love for you to kind of dive into it just a little bit, kind of break it down for people who aren't familiar. Um, Because I do think we are living in, um, I don't know, I, as someone who struggled with, you know, anxieties and mental health previously I think it can it can definitely feel like something that's happening to you and something that you don't have much control over um and for sure there are things like chemical imbalances and things like that that need to be addressed um but I also think you know I value being as much in control of my life quality as possible and I think this addresses that directly so yeah I'd love for you to just kind of dive into that Absolutely. Yeah, this is a really, really intriguing approach that is evidence-based and has been around for a while now and has really gained a lot of steam and is um, used by a lot of you know, mental health professionals around, around the world. And the, the core of it is acceptance and committing you know, to, to a different path. And so there's these six kind of basic principles that I can try to walk through quickly and then maybe give you a couple examples of how they play out. So one of the first ones, so I guess the key of the model is to overcome psychological inflexibility, where we get stuck on things, where we're very reactive, where we are kind of controlled by stimuli, by our environment, by things that are thrown at us, or by things that are happening inside of us, that they essentially are dictating you know, how we're acting, if we're avoiding, things like that. And the goal then by overcoming inflexibility is to develop psychological flexibility, where we have more control, where we are determining um, what we're going to engage with, you know, give our attention to, and so we can be adaptive and we can do things more based on our values versus just doing things that are reactive. Um, so that's kind of the, that's the hope of this model. And so one of the first principles is trying to overcome this sense that, um, that we are the content, that our self is the content of what's going on inside us, and instead to try to adopt this mindset that we are the context mean that we have thoughts and emotions and internal experiences, cravings, memories, but they are experiences going on inside of us and we are the observer. And so it's learning to pull back into this deeper sense of self, this observing self that can notice thoughts, emotions, memories, cravings, be aware of them without being them. And there's exercises that can promote this. You can ask people say, okay, let's do a little exercise. Let's see if you can just notice what's going on inside your mind. So let's sit still for a minute. And let's pay attention and without judging or trying to change or control, just see if you can follow your thoughts for a few minutes. And typically when people are silent and they watch and observe, they can, they can realize, oh, my thoughts went to my to-do list or my thoughts went to this thing I'm worried about in the future. or My thoughts went to how tired I am or, you know, and, and their thoughts just kind of do things and they can observe what those thoughts do, which gives this awareness that I guess I'm not exactly my thoughts. If I'm aware of my thoughts, there's, you know, this, this metacognition is is an indicator that we're something even more than, than our own thoughts. So that's kind of the first concept. 
The second one is, goes right along with that, and that's that sometimes we become so fused with our thoughts, emotions, memories, that again, we become one and the same. If we have a thought, we believe it. If we have a thought, it's true. If we, if we have a thought, it's a demand. It must be followed, or the same with an emotion. Um, if we have a craving, we must follow it. And so the key of ACT is to help us defuse, disconnect from those, so that they can happen inside us and we're, we're stepped back enough to notice them and watch them without having to do the same thing. So one example is, you know, that's used, there's lots of metaphors and awesome analogies used in ACT. One is thinking about like a parade. Um, if, they're, if you're watching a parade and there's floats and bands going by, you know, if a band comes up and plays really loud, do you have to go join the band and start yelling with the band and marching with it wherever it goes, right? You may feel compelled to do that because maybe it's playing really loud music and they're yelling or even inviting you to join them. Um, but you don't actually have to, right? You can notice and observe and appreciate, but not actually go march with the band. You can just kind of let it come, play its thing and, and move on past. Um, if a float comes up, maybe some political float and there's people passing out stickers and like, come join our march. You know, you don't have to actually go get on the float and go with it for the rest of the parade. You can notice it and observe it. And if you don't value what is promoting, you can let it pass on by, right? And so that's diffusion, being able to, to step back and in, in, in really even a non-judgmental way, observe and be aware without being one and the same as those things. So that's the second one. Um, the third one, the third problem with the third principle is experiential avoidance, where if we deem certain things inside of us to be intolerable, like I should never feel anxiety or I shouldn't feel uncomfortable or I shouldn't have these types of thoughts or I shouldn't have these cravings, so I have to get rid of them at all costs. That becomes really problematic because then we can start to do extreme things to try to control things that we actually can't control, right? If we're like, I can't have this memory anymore, this really traumatic memory, then we may have to use a lot of drugs to numb that memory in ways that cause their own problems. And then it's the experiential avoidance that becomes the problem that we're, you know, we're becoming a workaholic to not have to feel things, or we're using all these drugs to not have to feel things or think things, um, or we're going doing extreme measures, right, to not try to get rid of a thought that actually we, we can't, there's not that much we can do to really get rid of some of these things. They're going to return almost as they please, right? We're going to have emotions when we don't want them. We're going to have thoughts when we don't want them. We're going to have memories pop up through triggers, associations when we don't necessarily want them. And so the, what we're trying to get to on this next principle is acceptance. It's accepting that there's just a lot of things we can't control and it's better to let them be. We don't have to like them or love them or, or say they're just fine. We can just, well, we can let them be. Like we can stop fighting with them, wrestling with them, trying to flee from them, exerting so much energy in a relationship with them and let them be in the background. Um, one example that I kind of came up with or a client and I came up with recently was if you're, let's say, a quarterback on a football team. Just because there's people screaming at you in the fan in the in the crowd, like right? there's fans yelling loud or negative or mean things, um, you know, the first step of act, of act is to realize it's diffuse with that. Realize, okay, those are just ideas and thoughts. That doesn't mean they're true. Just because they're saying negative things about me and my abilities as a quarterback, you know, if they're from the opposing team. But then the second part is to accept that I don't have to go up to the stands and try to throw these guys out of, out of the stadium before I can play football. I can accept that they're fans and fans are always at games and fans say crazy things and I don't have to get rid of them to just play my game anyways. It's not fun. It's annoying, but I can still accept that they are going to do their things as fans and I'm going to do my thing as a, as a quarterback and I'm going to play my game the best I can and let that be in the background while I bring my focus and my attention to you know my task at hand and that's doing the best I can for my team. 
And so that's that's acceptance. It's kind of letting letting it be. Um, and stop me at any point if there's questions because there's kind of a lot here. I guess maybe covering too much. Um, so yeah, I can pause or break it up if that's helpful. But another fun analogy with this one is this idea of having a tug of war with a monster. So sometimes, you know, visual helps here, but if you can just imagine um, there's this like pit of death between you and this monster and there's poison spikes, or if you fall in, you're a complete goner, right? And you're having this tug of war with this monster and this monster is probably three times your size, much stronger, vicious, ugly, and you're having this tug of war, right? And so kind of a question that if I was talking to a client that I may ask them is, you know, what are you going to do if literally death feels like it's on the line if you were to lose? And most clients would say, well, I, I would give everything I got, you know, I'd dig my hills in, I would pull as hard as I possibly can. I mean, I would just give my life, you know, just give everything to this battle with this monster. And, and then the question becomes, well, what if this monster really is three times as strong as you are? What if there's no way to win? Um, then what's going to happen, right? Could your whole life be consumed by this battle with a monster that you can never win? You can never pull in the pit. And so then the question becomes, so is all lost, right? Is, is, is everything over at that point? Or is there some other option? And, and one question you can then ask is, the tighter you hold on the rope, you know, based on the laws of physics, are you actually more or less likely to get pulled into the pit of death at this point? And as we think about this, we realize we're actually more. This monster is stronger than we are. So the more we engage, the more it's pulling us to the edge of the cliff and, and the sooner we're actually going to fall in, right? And so then the question is, okay, well, what else can be done then, right? If, if the more you fight, the worse it gets, the more miserable you are, the more consumed you are with this battle that's unwinnable. Um, and then, you know, in the moment of crisis, we don't think of the, the creative options because we're so fixated on just fight harder, right? The fight or flight response kicks in and it's just fight harder, fight harder. Um, but, you know, with a more creative mindset, we can realize, oh, there is another option. Like I could drop the rope. I, I don't have to engage in this tug of war. And that means accepting that I'm not getting rid of the monster. He's still over there doing his ugly, loud thing, but I'm not engaging with the monster anymore. I'm not spending every waking minute fighting this monster that I can't win. You know, these and the monster, right, can represent internal experiences like negative thoughts, difficult emotions, bad memories, cravings that we we don't want to follow. Um, but when we can let those be by letting go of the rope, then then it frees us up to pursue other things with our life. All of our life isn't consumed with trying to fight this thing that we can't control. Now we can go pursue our values. We can go spend quality time with people we love, activities that are rewarding and enriching. And again, it's so much easier said than done, but that's the basic process of acceptance is letting be the things in our life that we can't control. And a lot of internal experiences, we can't control. The, sometimes the harder we try, the more attention we give them, the bigger they become, the larger, the stronger they get. So. Yeah. No, that's, and just a quick, a quick personal anecdote. Um, as far as the acceptance, I think one thing that I'd like to add in there that has helped me as well is if you let's say you get diagnosed. Um, I think that a diagnosis from a professional, if you are having some kind of clinical disorder, can be a really beautiful part of accepting because then you can learn about it, right? So high school, you know, beginning of college, realized I was struggling with OCD. I've talked about it before. Um, and learning about it was just life-changing for me because, you know, when you realize you're like, oh, this is this is something that a lot of people experience. It's pretty common, actually. Like, it happens all the time. You know, it's not, 
I don't know. It just becomes something that you live with generally comfortably. Like I'm also gluten-free. Kind of the same thing. Not the same thing, right? As like as mental health, but I, I kind of have a, it just seems like an analogy that goes side by side for me. As soon as I realized that my body was rejecting wheat, I, I know there will never be a point in my life where I eat wheat again. That just is not possible. But with the diagnosis, like it's just something I live with, you know, like sometimes I'll have to order something different off a menu. You know, sometimes I'll have to kind of bring my own, you know, whatever it is. I have just kind of made these like minor life adjustments and it's good. Like, are there times where I'm like really sad that I'm like, oh, I would really love to eat those rolls. Yeah. And that's kind of the analogy that has helped me in kind of the acceptance portion is like, learn about it. Like, let's not just let this happen to you. Like, educate yourself. Your mind is not different than everyone else's in, in a lot of ways, right? Like, we all have a very similar experience. So that would just yeah. be my one plug, just from personal experience. I think that's so insightful. And often that's kind of step one is differentiating between what we can and can't control and letting go of the effort and the energy on the things we can't control because the unwinnable battle and it just means we're exhausting our energy and resources. And by letting go of what we can't control, then we can bring our attention and energy towards the things we can influence for good and spending our energy there because that's where we start to see improvement. That's where we feel empowered. That's where change really starts to occur. Um, when we're fixated on what we can't control, that can overwhelm us. We can think, you know, our whole life is that, but you let go of that and you realize, oh, there's a whole lot of uh, more life out here. You know, that was just 10% of my life or 5% of my life, 1% of my life. And I got this other 90%, you know, potentially out here of just stuff I can explore and do and enjoy that has nothing to do with that problem area. I like kind of the analogy of, you know, if your life is like a landscape painting and you have this dark corner of the painting, that's maybe 20% of the painting. If we put our eye up to that corner and it's a few centimeters away, our whole, our whole life, our, the whole, the whole 100% can feel like that dark corner because that's all we're focusing on. That's what we're dwelling and ruminating on and getting stuck on. And those are the neural pathways we're entertaining. But the moment we can find a way to really take a step back and kind of let, let that go or create some distance from that, diffuse from that, then we can see the whole painting again and realize, oh my goodness, it's not all that dark corner. There's actually 80% else, you know, this beautiful sun and snow-capped mountains and lovely green hills and a crystal clear lake and, you know, trees. And, and we can enjoy those other parts of our life again. So we weren't because we were so stuck on that, that dark corner. And, and it makes sense that we would fixate and give attention to that dark corner because our brain has a negativity bias. It, it gravitates towards the most threatening thing. There's survival value in that. You know, thank goodness it does that. But knowing that we can, if it's something we really can't change and control, then we can let go of that and we can redirect elsewhere. If, it, if it's something that's really threatening that we can get rid of and change, absolutely we should do that. But the parts of ourselves that we can't, that are chronic, you know, those are the things that we can, we can let be and direct our, our attention and energy elsewhere. So that kind of leads to, so we, those are kind of the first three principles, self as context, diffusion, acceptance, and the last three I'll cover more quickly are mindfulness. And the problem there before we become mindful is we can get stuck in dwelling on past mistakes. We can get stuck in worrying about things in the future and really not even be living in the present. And so being mindful is trying to bring our attention back to the present to bring our full curiosity and to engage with things in the moment in meaningful ways and that of course first requires accepting and letting be things that we can't control letting those things anxieties emotions fears be in the background so we can bring our foreground attention to giving full interest curiosity to what what's at hand um and there's different exercises that people can do to build this capacity you can do like auditory mindfulness 
where you are quiet for 10 minutes and you bring your full attention to what you can hear. And if your mind wanders, which it'll do, you just gently, non-judgmentally let go of that and bring your attention back. And so the goal here is to overcome a tendency to dwell on past mistakes or worry about things in the future. And by letting go of those, bring ourselves back to the present to engage in the moment. Um, and that allows us to operate differently. And so goal here is to actually practice this. And there's a lot of ways to do this. Um, you can do an auditory mindfulness where you sit still for 10 minutes and you just try to bring your full attention and awareness and curiosity to the present moment. And as you do that, inevitably, right, your mind will have some thoughts that pop in about things you need to get done or how boring this is or whatever. And you just gently, non-judgmentally let that be and bring your attention right back to what you can hear. And then some emotions might pop up. Maybe they're uncomfortable. And again, you acknowledge them, you let them be, and you just bring your attention right back to what you can hear. And something else pops up and something else, and you just gently let those be, and you keep bringing your attention right back to the present, to what you can hear. And you do this for 10 full minutes. And when people do this daily, and it doesn't have to be auditory, it could be a visual one where you sit outside and just bring your full attention to what you can see, the shapes and textures and movements. And if your mind wanders, let it be, bring it back. Um, as you do this on a regular basis, the the functioning and actually the structure of the brain changes. It gets better and better at being bringing its full attention or the majority of its attention to the present moment, to the task you're engaged in, the person you're talking to, what you're working on in the moment. And it's freeing, right? The brain is less likely to fixate and to get stuck on different thoughts or emotions in the background and to be able to bring itself to engaging with life in the moment. And so that's, you know, mindfulness and it's super effective. And the beautiful thing about mindfulness is that opens up the possibility of doing principle five, the second to last principle. And this is what we call values clarification. So when we're mindful, then we're not just reacting to what's going on in our environment. We can actually consult our values and determine a value-based response. So Viktor Frankl, you wrote Man's Search for Meaning, he has this great quote. He says, between stimulus and response is a space. And in that space, if we realize it's there, we can make a choice and that choice will likely determine our destiny. And so mindfulness is a way to kind of widen that space, that gap between stimulus and our response. And the wider it is, the less likely we are to just to be reactive, just kind of do whatever in the environment's you know, um, pushing at us to do, um, you know, just kind of floating downstream with whatever the currents of the moment are, but to instead say to pivot and say, you know, what's a value-based way to respond to this person who's treating me really rudely right now um, on the grocery aisle? Uh, what do I value? I, well, I value being, you know, maybe kind and respectful and empathic. And so regardless of what I want to do, and that's yell right back at them, instead, I'm going to say, hey, I'm really sorry. Like, can I, can I help you? Or did I do something that bothered you? Or were you wanting to go in front of me in line? That's fine. Or, you know, whatever your value is, right? To approach it in a reasonable value-based way and not in this reactive screaming back at them kind of way, right? Or with your kids, you know, if your kids are tantruming and you just want to yell at your kids because that's what you feel inclined to do. That's what your brain and body's telling you to do in the moment. If you're mindful, there's that you create enough space to be in the moment and say, okay, what are my values right now? I value being a good role model to my kids. So I'm not going to scream at them. I'm going to try to talk with them reasonably. I'm going to try to figure out what they need. And, and we're going to find a healthy way for them to get that met without, you know, reinforcing tantruming or whatever it may be, right? So it's really empowering. We start to regain all this control of our life when we really get good at being mindful, being in the moment, being conscious, like awake, and being able to make decisions versus just reacting and going down old patterns 
you know, old pathways that maybe are very reactive and haven't worked for years. And we just always tend to react in the same way and it doesn't work. And we react in the same way and it doesn't work. Mindfulness allows us to pivot and start to do things kind of differently. So, um, so mindfulness leads to values clarification. So in order to know how to proceed when we are mindful, we have to clarify what our values actually are. And those can be what we, what we care to spend time pursuing. Those could be character traits we want to exhibit, like being respectful or kind or patient or you know, whatever it is that we value. Um, we need to clarify that. We need to clarify what matters in our life. And this goes back to your question towards the beginning of, in order to cross the cold stream, in order to step outside our comfort zone, there has to be something of enough value to motivate us to do an uncomfortable thing. And so spending good quality time on what do I care about in life? What do I want out of life? What do I want to achieve in life? Who do I want to be in life? What matters to me is so empowering because that those become yeah. the motivators to get us going, to get us out of bed, to, to get us to do things we otherwise wouldn't because our brain and body are often going to push us to take the path of release resistance. So to take the path of meaning and purpose, you know, requires a clear vision and clear goals. And so that's the, the second to last principle. And then the final principle of act, as you might expect, is to act, you know, to then commit to doing the things that you value, that regardless of situations, of what the environment's throwing at you, of, of how someone else treats you, that you're going to be mindful enough to consult your values and then act in accordance with those values. And I think your example, Brecklin, is excellent of this, where you sounds like you had some value, you know, to, you know, to focus on improving your health and you felt like swimming was the way to do that. And so you had that clear value in your mind, you reminded yourself of that, and then you committed to it and you did what it took to make that happen, even though it was uncomfortable and it was cold and it was hard, like you were mindful enough to be aware of your values and you committed to doing them and you did it and you jumped in that pool. <laughs> and that's kind of the final step of act is to, to set up commitments, to set up routines, to set up positive habits that will allow us to consistently do mm -hmm. what we value. And the, and the hope, right, the outcome of act, in addition to this psychological flexibility of being able to, to really do what we want in moments and not just follow what the environment dictates, or what our internal, you know, thoughts, emotions, cravings dictate, um, is that in the end, if we're more intentional about our life and following our values, we create an enriched life. Our life is more sweet. Our relationships are higher quality. Um, we feel better about ourselves. We grow and develop in the ways we want. We, yeah. we enjoy our life more. And so ACT really is about creating a better life, a higher quality life by intentionally honoring our values, which comes from letting go of the things we can't control, including a lot of internal experiences and mindfully intentionally making choices to do what matters to us. And, and I think too, when you're talking about kind of the potential of this method to just kind of light up your world again, I think you also kind of develop a trust with yourself. And I think you have the potential for your relationship with yourself to improve. And I, I, I think it's a, a really scary place to be where you do feel like life happens to you and you know, you hope it goes well and, you know, you hope you're happy and you kind of hope for these things um, without really feeling like you have any hand in in what your life is. And I think once that trust builds up and builds up, um, like I said, small example, but I do trust myself to get in the car and to jump in the pool every day that I have planned on it. Like it's and before I, I genuinely like I wouldn't buy a monthly pass to a pool like I didn't trust myself. And I do think it that has the potential to be just bonus points for me. I think I think it's a good, just another beautiful thing it can bring into your life. Absolutely, yeah. Just trusting your values or 
in, in humanistic therapy, they talk about trusting your authentic self, your deep-seated values and needs, and and kind of getting past some of maybe the shoulds or the layers of expectations that life throws at us and getting back to what deep, deep down really matters to me. What do I deeply value? What do I deeply need? And trying to um, bring our more of our behaviors, more of our life back to aligning with those things and living with integrity, you know, according to those. And we tend to thrive more. We tend to flourish more when we're really feeding ourselves with the things that matter most to us and spending less time on the things that are really actually trivial and maybe think people said we should be pursuing, but actually we, we really don't value that much and do very little for us um, or those we value, you know, those we cherish in our life. So I think, yeah, trusting our authentic self can go, go a long way. So just kind of moving into, obviously you were, I just have always been a champion of this method to me, but you have also been working on your own project. So I would love for you to speak to that. You wrote a book, which is, first of all, a huge accomplishment. I mean, how long have you been working on it? Yeah, it's been a good decade <laughs> that I've been uh, thinking about this and trying to piece things together. So, Yeah. Tell us about the book. I'm, I, I want to know all of the things about it. Thank you. Yeah. So this is, you know, I just, I felt a desire to kind of try to piece some ideas together and, and, um, you know, due to my own kind of social anxieties and difficulty connecting and feeling like that really impaired my ability to have the quality of life I wanted, I guess, even at a very young age, right. Informally, I was on this quest to figure out how, like, how can you be happy? Like, how do you, what does that mean? Like, how do you do this? Like, how do you really get content with your life? And, and I think then, you know, after, spending some time out of the home, you know, I decided to pursue psychology, which I didn't know much about, but I thought maybe that has some answers for me too. And, and then pursue clinical psychology, you know, just learning about that. And I, I dove into positive psychology, which is the science of happiness and human thriving. Um, I really wanted to figure out like, what is at the heart of happiness? Like if you distill it all down, what is the underlying mechanism by which happiness is actually created? You know, there's hundreds of books, theories, practices that can increase happiness, but I wanted to kind of bring it all down to like this underlying common denominator of like, what is the active mechanism or active ingredient and kind of doing all this research for, for many, many years. It, I think it kind of surfaced for me and, and it wasn't like my discovery, like people have known this for, you know, the ages and use different terms and, and whatnot to describe this. But the term I am choosing to give to it is overlap. And, and so here's an analogy to try to explain what I'm getting at. I, you know, as a kid, my family saved up money. We flew across the country from Washington State to Florida to visit my uncle. And he took us to this beach. And I was so excited to be at a tropical beach. So we get out of the car, so pumped. And and this is more in hindsight that I'm realizing <laughs> these discoveries. But but I did notice, like, there's this highway going by. You know, I think we're in the Florida Keys, this highway going by. And there's cars just passing this beach. And it was kind of shocking as a little kid. Like, what on earth? Like, why isn't everyone stopping at this beach? Like, we're in Florida, tropical beach. Like, stop. Like, what are you you're missing? You're missing it. But, you know, they were busy. They had stuff to do. So they were flying by. So that was kind of the first level that I noticed. And then there was a second level. There's people sitting on the beach, you know, on their chairs and under their umbrellas. And, you know, they were having a pleasant time observing and noticing kids running around and seeing some things and sure they had a, a decent time but that was level two and then there's level three where some people walking along the shore maybe getting wet up to their ankles and they're they're waiting right and dabbling and you know that was a little bit refreshing and they were connecting a little bit more to the experience but then you know i looked out a little further and realized oh my goodness there's people like swimming out there right and they had 
committed and they had put the gear necessary on snorkeling gear, scuba diving gear, whatever it was. And they were diving down and we actually were able to do the same thing. We got snorkeling gear. We swam out there to those reefs and, and dove under the water and just experienced this whole new world. Right. I mean, I just could not imagine like until I did it, you know, like the colors and the different fish and all the life and, you know, the, just the reef and um, all that existed there. It was, it was amazing, you know, to connect and be a part of that and just um, deeply, deeply kind of encounter life. And that's what I mean by overlap. So level one is passing. We, we're missing the living things in our life. Sometimes we don't even realize there is anything alive we're stopping to encounter and engage with. Two is we kind of spectate. We just watch life happening and, or watch others living their life. You know, virtual TV shows are a good example of it. My wife and I, one time we're watching this show and we're like, you know, maybe instead of watching someone else fix up their house and have this beautiful home, we should do that. You know, I mean, we should get up and like, start doing these fun activities and like beautify our home. You know, it's just kind of this wake up call. Like, why are we just watching someone else live? Um, <laughs> and then the level two spectating, level three is is waiting, right? Where we, we kind of are dabbling with engaging with living things. Like maybe you sit on the couch your partner's on the other side of the couch and you make a comment here and there to them, but mostly you're, you know, scrolling through TikTok or Pinterest or something. It's, you're not really engaging at a very deep level. And, and that's just not the same experience as when you overlap, right? When you pick up your child, you put them on your lap, you look in their eyes, you give them a hug, you ask how their day was, you know, you, you receive the gifts they're giving you, you know, just their cute jokes and smile and, and you just absorb it. You just soak in the goodness of being with and encountering another living thing that's beautiful, that's wonderful, that you value. And it's, it's transformative. It's just this beautiful, energizing experience that we can only get when we commit and engage at a deeper level with a highly living thing. And so that's kind of the basic premise is the more we deeply engage with living things, the more joy we experience, the greater meaning we find in life, and overall, the more satisfaction we'll have with our lives. Joy is a primary emotion that tends to surface when we're meeting a psychological or physical need. And so overlap very rapidly helps meet needs for social connection, which is one of our primary, most strongest needs. Um, it helps meet needs for variety in our life. When we overlap deeply, we learn new things. We see the complexity in nature and people and experiences. It fulfills our need for growth because we tend to learn things when we're ri richly overlapping with things. And, and um, the definition, you know, I say it's overlapping with living things. And by living things, I mean things that have richness and depth and complexity and abundance and can offer gifts, right? So that could be just wisdom, like in a, in a really good book, you know, you can overlap with a book and really like read it and absorb it and learn from it and connect with the author, you know, through the wisdom they're imparting. Though there's lots of ways, you know, to overlap with living things. It could be nature, it could be people, it could be pets, it could be your garden, you know, there's all these different things. But the result that I found that the research seems to keep pointing towards is that brings regular joy to our lives. Each time we overlap, joy tends to come and say, ding, 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 you met a psychological need, that was healthy, do it again. And meaning, it just creates moments of deep meaning um, where we feel really connected, we feel a lot of substance in our life, and that tends to be a life we're more content with, where at the end of the day, we can be like, wow, I deeply connected with multiple things, with my child, with my pet, with a colleague at work, with new information, with wisdom, with music, and wow, that was a great day. I feel like I lived, I was, you know, vitality you know, um, came into my life at a higher level and, and I'm content. So that's, that's the basic premise. That's amazing. Well, tell us where you are kind of in your process with the book. Is it 
tell us like the full title. Is it Overlap? So yeah, it's Overlap, The Heart of Happiness, an evidence-based recipe for joy, meaning, and life satisfaction. So it's kind of a mouthful, but... No, I love it. And is it something that we can access yet or where are you kind of in that process? Not quite. So I, I finished the editing process um, and I'm just barely. And so I'm in the process of doing some typesetting and getting it ready to publish. So I'm planning on self-publishing through um, Amazon, Kindle Direct Publishing. So it'll be available as an ebook and a paperback. And at some point it'll be an audiobook. So that really hoping will happen within a week or two. I'm um, I'm very close, <laughs> but there's always these final, That's final amazing. massaging to do to get it, you know, perfectly ready and to make sure I've checked into, I've, you know, I added some images recently and there's some copyright things I have to make sure I have, I have in place so that um, everything's in order. So I'm, I'm almost there, but yes, it'll be available hopefully within That's two to incredible. three weeks on Amazon. So. Awesome. Well, as soon as that is available, we'll be linking that um, for anyone following me on Instagram um, all of those things. So it will be available in the next little bit. Um, and we will be kind of broadcasting access to that because it's just, if you make an investment, this is the one to make. Um, so thank you just so much for sharing everything that you've learned, everything that you've studied. I just think it's such a gift to, to share with other people how, how life can be better, because I think that's something that we're all looking for and actively striving for, even if it's subconscious. And it just was such a treat to have you on. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much, Brecklance. Always a pleasure to talk with you. And I think you're doing a wonder- <laughs> wonderful thing here. I think your podcast has so many awesome elements and um, you're so thoughtful and witty and fun. And I appreciate you so much. Oh, thank you. Um, and for any- everyone else listening in, go ahead. And like I said, I'll- I will be linking Um, the book as soon as it becomes available. Um, As far as my end, please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't already, go ahead and rate and review. Um, It pushes my podcast out to more people and I greatly appreciate it. Um, That is all we have for this week. I will see you next Tuesday. Bye-bye.